This is the Shelbourne News Center podcast. This is Dr. Benner, and we're here tonight talking about an interesting topic to our office that we've just started using this year, robotic assistance for total knee arthroplasty. And I have my own uh, short experience here that's just been since the first of the year. We've done about 150 of these cases at our center, but we wanted to bring on someone with a little bit longer experience uh, than I have. So tonight, Scott Bauman is here with me, our our co-host. And also, we are hosting tonight Dr. Jim Bauer. Jim is from Portland, Oregon. He is from Rock Orthopedics. Uh, if you want to hit his social media to check it out, uh, Rock underscore Orthopedics is his face is his Instagram handle. And then you can also see him on on Facebook as well. He also has a website that is JamesBallardMD.com, and you can visit all those to check him out. So, Jim, thank you for joining us tonight, and it's a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's great to finally be on with you guys. Tonight, we're going to be talking, like we said, about robotics. And uh, robotics is kind of, it's new to me anyway. Uh, it was something that uh, was presented to me probably three or four years ago. And, I, and I'll, to be honest, I was very resistant to from the very beginning and told my reps when they were pitching this stuff to me, you know what, this is an uphill battle. I don't think this is probably for me. And they, you know, like, like happens a lot with, with uh, people from industry that were having discussions about new things. Over time, they kind of just chipped away. And, and, and I started reading a little bit more about this and hearing a little bit more about this. And, uh, you know, kind of slowly increased my level of interest. Uh, and like I said, I just started at the first of the year doing robotic total knee cases. And uh, so uh, let's just jump right in here, Jim. Uh, how long have you been using robotics? And uh, kind of tell us a little bit about your arthroplasty practice. Yes, yeah, so I've been in practice for 20 years. So I started here in Portland in 03. And that was way at the beginning, the early days of navigation. So my robotic involvement kind of has starts and stops as as my career has gone on. So for some reason, the Northwest was a hot spot for navigation in the early 2000s. And I know navigation is not robotics, but it's certainly the beginning of robotics, right? Because mm -hmm. every robotics platform is an advanced navigation unit. So I got involved in navigation. I And the first navigation unit I used was from this company that Smith & Nephew ended up purchase, purchasing called Plus Orthopedics. And Crazily enough, back in like 04, this was a passive robotics mixed navigation unit called Pi Galileo. Have you ever heard of it? I have not, no. Probably haven't. So you would put a clamp on the femur, like right at the metaphyseal flare, and the mm -hmm. clamp provided a stationary location for this robotic arm that you would clamp in. I'm sorry, a little motorized unit you would clamp in, and then it would move the cutting block passively to make all the cuts. So a little bit similar to what you and I use now with Rosa. So that, you know, that was taking navigation and then just uh, determining, you know, neutral mechanical axis, making sure all the cuts achieved that because we were all after neutral mechanical axis back then. Um, that was kind of cool. I mean, it was a novel technology. Um, it didn't incorporate soft tissue at all. So it didn't really uh, focus on, you know, balancing or achieving equal gaps like what we're all focused on right now but I, I was telling scott earlier that yesterday i saw a lady back like 17 years later and that knee looks like i put it in yesterday which mm -hmm. when you think about it, it's old polyethylene and all that i mean that that's kind of cool so it's a testament that that stuff worked back then i moved on to to just straight navigation with striker for a long time then i just didn't I, then i just moved into regular standard instruments Mako eventually came along. This was pre-Striker, purchasing Mako. And mm -hmm. I I hadn't been really taught unis very much in my fellowship or my residency. So Mako was all unis back then. And so I went, you know, to Northern California and 
learned on Mako and my hospital bought a Mako and then the Northwest being what it is. I mean, Mako exploded up here in mm-hmm. Washington and in, in Seattle and Portland. And I learned how to do unis on a Mako and it was a really nice machine and uh, used that for a while. Then, then Stryker purchased Mako and then Rodney, what you said came into me. I got very frustrated with robotics I, I didn't like all the promises and it was being over. I thought it was being overhyped. I just didn't know how it was going to really be good for total knees. And I was being told, you know, like, like you mentioned, the reps kind of chip away at us. Right. And the striker reps were telling me like I was going to be able to do total knees if I didn't do robotics. And I just shut my mind off to it and just told them to go away. And I really became a robotic skeptic and wanted nothing to do with it again. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. Right. Cause I started, Early on, I'm adopting this technology in the early 2000s, and then for reasons that didn't have much to do with science, I just got socially tired of what they were telling me. <laughs> so I just kind of told them to go away, you know. It's interesting um, how we do that, isn't it? As, as, as orthopedic surgeons, we're like, oh, why am I doing this? I want to do something different. <laughs> yeah, to, to be honest, that's something that I, I felt like I had to fight for a while when I did become interested in this. Am I really interested for the right reasons or am I just interested because I'm getting bored with what I'm doing right now? And I'm, I'm much, much less of an early adopter than it sounds like you were earlier in your career. I've been in practice for 11 years and, uh, you know, I've, I've, you know, I trained under Gil Scuderi with at, at the Insol, at the Insol fellowship, yeah. what I consider pretty old school, you know, bread and bread and butter knee arthroplasty. And that really was right up my alley. I like reproducibility. I like not having to fiddle around with things. And and that stuff was all really interesting for me. So when we started to think about robotics, um, you know, I just, I had to stop and think for a beat, like, am I doing this for the right reasons? And, and eventually the answer was yes. Um, but, uh, but I hear you on that, that, you know, that we go through phases, it seems like uh, all of us do, I think, where we get, where we get bored every once in a while. And it's, it's, it's tough to, it's, it's a tough creep that you have to, you have to kind of, uh, you know, you know, part against from time to time, I guess. I just didn't like people telling me that I wasn't going to be good without it. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I didn't like yeah. being told that I needed it. And I was yeah. like, you know what? Uh, sorry, I don't need it. And so then what's funny is I switched my knee implant system to Persona, which is sold by Zimmer. And I fell in love with the system. And then Zimmer started calling me like they called you. I'm like, hey, you should look up this robot system here called Rosa. And I just told them to go away. I'm like, I, I told them I wasn't interested. I didn't want to know anything about it. And time went by. And then some of my buddies that I know through Zimmer started to use it and started to talk about it. One of my buddies was using Mako and was talking a lot about it. And then one thing led to another. And I found myself in a lab in Arizona kind of reluctantly. I mean, I think I, I met you at one of your first labs for Rosa. Mm-hmm. And, and I was very reluctant. And I, I was open-minded, but not really and then my interest just kind of peaked, and eventually I ended up with a rose at my surgery center, um, yeah. and did and, and so that, and then so to answer your first question, that's a long answer, but that's how I kind of weaved my way where I am now. And what's hilarious is Rodney, I started using it really because I wanted to have some meat on the bone to go back and tell Zimmer why I was right and why I didn't need it. Because we placed it, I didn't. I didn't. I've heard it. myself say those exact words a couple <laughs> years ago. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, I'm just going to tell you guys why this isn't necessary, but I want to have 40 cases under my belt so I have some substance. And then, and then it just all went in a completely different direction once I started getting into it. I mean, I I couldn't have been more wrong. 
Well, let's let's go back in time then to the to your experience with navigation and kind of set that scene for before you were really into a true robotic platform where you were doing mostly just computer navigation for total needs. From my perspective, one of my early hesitancies with with the uh, with the advent of of robotics was I felt like when I reviewed the literature from computer navigation, it seemed to be pretty settled science, in my opinion, that it decreased the incidence of alignment outliers, that it was pretty pretty clearly showing us an advantage with getting to our mechanical axis uh, and alignment targets that we wanted to. It also seemed like equally settled science that despite that, that it didn't seem to make a difference in patient outcomes. And for exactly. me, I cared a lot more about patient outcomes. You know, when I think about alignment, and I'll get a little, a little, about a, a little bit of a soapbox here. We look at Merrill Ritter's data talking about how they had higher revision rates in people who had alignment outliers. We have Mark, Pag- Mark Pagnano and the Mayo Group's data that showed that the alignment outliers didn't do any worse from an alignment perspective. And then we have people that are, I, th- I think, more total knee purists like me that are still trying to stick to my parallel and perpendicular uh, perfection ways and and people who are telling me Steve Howe people like that that are saying a little bit of constitutional virus and want to leave it a little bit this way a little bit that way so in the final analysis my thought was okay so we can't decide what our target is we can't decide whether or not it matters or not if we hit our target because there's data that shows us yes or no each way so how, the only reason I'm going to be interested in this is if it can make me make my patients better in the final analysis. And it, it just seemed to me like, it seems like equally settled science that that just isn't the case. Um, so, you know, fr- from from my perspective, uh, I know how I dealt with that, but when, you know, you're, you're, you have that same kind of stuff available to you, I'm sure you probably thought a lot of those same things. What was it that, that started to make you think uh, that it could be helpful for your patients? Well, I, like you, I started going, now, wait a minute. So if the idea is neutral mechanical alignment like that's what you and i were raised on right mm-hmm. that was that was like the 11th commandment i mean you put people at neutral <laughs> plus or minus three degrees right mm-hmm. so if you if you did a case and you fell within three about three of valgus three of Varus, which is a six degree swing then you get a gold star right yep. and you're like okay i'm awesome uh, i don't have an outlier or whatever and then when i started going but wait a minute it's not affecting outcomes really so that's why i went away from navigation I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't think it's make. I, I, I did it. I wasn't, I wasn't taking a super long time to do the cases, but I'm like, I'm not making a difference. I went back to standard instruments. Nothing changed. Now, kinematic alignment came along and most people thought he was nuts. Right. I mean, that it just dismissed him. And then people started going, wait a minute, there is something about that. And at the same time, I remember maybe, maybe it was about Oh five or Oh six when I was like, okay, Every person wants to be in it does nope, not every patient wants to be in neutral mechanical alignment. Some people want to be in Severus, some people want to be in Valgus. And when I take a person that might want to be in four degrees of Varus and smash them into neutral, it makes sense that their knee would hurt. And the same would go for a Valgus knee. But I remember thinking, I have no idea where they want to be. So because I have no idea where they want to be, I'm going to jam everybody into a neutral alignment. And to me, the difference with, with robotics of this generation, and it isn't just Rosa. I mean, I, I think Rosa is a great system. I think the knee, that, the knee that goes with it is wonderful, but it isn't just Rosa. Robotics, if they're used to their potential, I think get us closer to the answer of maybe being knowing where somebody wants to be and putting them where they want to be. Now, I'm not a kinematic guy, so I wouldn't say what I do is kinematic, but it's more of a 
you know, people are calling, but we have multiple names for it. Some people call it restricted kinematic. I think that's insulting to the kinematic people, um, hybrid alignment, <laughs> whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But to me, the big thing with robotics is being able to play in the various valgus alignment realm to some degree, maybe four degrees in each direction, and finding out the people did much better when I did that. Well, I thought that the, for, for me, when I when I got to the end of that and was thinking that and thinking, you know what, I don't think robotics is for me. What what, what changed it, I think, for me is uh, a, a little bit of shifting my own paradigm of just looking at just thinking about coronal alignment all the time and seeing in practice how many people would come to me with bad total knees done elsewhere that had 15 degrees of posterior slope. Like, oh, that yeah. looks perf- oh, man, that looks perfect on the AP view. Wow, the posterior slope is way off. Or people that would come in anterior slope uh, with anterior slope of the tibia, and and a big one for me is component rotation, which that's one I feel like is we're really that the the system is really good at on the femur, and really doesn't even really address on the tibia, which which I think is uh, is unfortunate because I I believe that that's the most important alignment parameter that people get wrong in 2023 is is tibial component malrotation um, and internally rotating tibias. So, but but I like that it wasn't just focused on coronal plane alignment. It allowed you to play with posterior slope. I tend to put in a little more posterior slope than the average surgeon. Probably I'm more like a five to seven guy as opposed to as opposed to three. Um, Norm Scott, when I was in fellowship, I felt like did a little bit more of that, and I and I, and I really liked uh, his technique in that regard. Um, and and then and then also having being able to quantify the ligament balancing piece, which I, I think we'll be able to talk about a little bit later, uh, was something that was really interesting. Yeah, and you know, also this goes along with something that you just said: getting more information, like you said, on sagittal alignment, so slope, and then you get into from a component rotation. I was a me- I was born and raised, and I think so were you, as a measure resection guy. I didn't know anything about gap balancing when I got out mm-hmm. of my fellowship. And when I started using the their persona system, maybe four years, maybe five years pre-Rosa, I converted to gap balancing in one OR day. <laughs> like if they have yeah. a balance, I use it. And I suddenly started, it's like my mind opened, you know, I went, oh my gosh, I can play with thermal component rotation and create balance flexion gaps. Where with measure resection, you're stuck at three degrees relative to PCA and, mm-hmm. and you can't affect flexion gaps. And so I started getting rid of the idea to what you said earlier, paradigm shift and being open to moving the femoral component in and out of the flexion space and rotating it. And that was an epiphany I had pre-robotics that I took into robotics that made a huge difference for me. And to go back to what you said before, the tibial component rotation, there's no doubt of the revisions I do, which I do a fair number, are almost all young knees like I'm not revising a bunch of disasters that are 25 years old. They're Agreed. four years old and almost all of them have tibial rotation errors. And so that, that that's very common. And, you know, a lot of that comes from symmetric base plate design. It, mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to avoid that with it, with an anatomically designed tibia, which gets into the Rosa system, but I'm sorry, yeah. the persona system. Yeah. So this answer, the answer to this question may be different now than maybe it was, you know, three years ago or whenever you started on this Rosa system, when you said you wanted to get those 40 cases and almost wanted to prove why you didn't need it. I can go the other direction. Why do you feel like you need it now? And is that answer now any different than when you're first starting out? Yeah. So I, as I started trying to prove it wrong, 
I was I was having these simultaneous these, these consecutive days where one day I would do Rosa's at my surgery center, then I go to the hospital and I would do standard instrumentation, and I started to see that I was the the visibility that Rosa gave me on the gap quantifying the gap, uh, the medial lateral gaps and flexion and extension that I didn't have with my eyes, being able to plan the cuts ahead of time and predict what I'm going to end up with with the cuts. I I concluded that I was doing a better knee with Rosa than I was without it. And it put me in a bit of a moral quandary because I was like, man, I'm, I don't think I'm doing a good as, as good of a case for this person at the hospital as I am for this person at the center. And so I went, I went to my CEO in my hospital and two months later we had a Rosa at my hospital because I just, I told him I, I needed it. So a lot of total needs that we do can be done very well with any technique you pick. And I think Rodney would agree with this measure resection, gap balancing, mm-hmm. kinematic alignment. People just, I don't know what the number is. Let's say it's 80%. But then there's always a weird case that you get when if you're if you're just cutting the cutting the bone without a, a, an eye on the prediction that ro- the robotics gives you, where you're like, ah, oh, crap, like my gaps are imbalanced. What do I do now? The bones are cut. Oh, no, I've got a poly that's 18. How did I get here? You know? And you knees can be really, really different and really odd. Like Rodney, I'm sure you tell me, have you noticed? And I know you've noticed this where you find a knee that on the x-ray is embarrassed. Like you're setting up and look at your film. It's embarrassed. Mm-hmm. You, you go through all your evaluation with Rose and it's really kind of loose medially. And it's not behaving like a various knee. And you're like, I see well, that in, in, in flexion. I see some that are that are that are me- loose medially with valgus and flexion, which is something that I never even checked before. And to be honest, a lot of times I, I ignore it now. That's one thing from her. I'm getting ahead into research. But one thing from a research perspective that I that I hope to be able to prove that I don't think matters in, in the way that I think other people do. When, when I feel like if I make a medial release and then I stress it in extension and it's stable. And then I bend the knee up and I put it in valgus at 90 degrees and it opens up medially. I used to not know what to do with that. You know, do I need to, do I need to constrain this? Do I, you know, do I need to change my, you know, in a varus knee, how often is this going to be a problem? And it was at a time early in my career that I, I'm like, I don't really know what this is going to do, but I just, I, I don't really think it's probably worth constraining it. And, and a lot of those patients went on to do well. And so that's something that I'm kind of, that I am quantifying now that I hope to prove, you know, that's something, but the, I bring that up just as a, as a point on something that now I can put some measurable data with that and yeah. show that if I get, if I get gaps that are 1.5 and two in extension, so I'm balanced in extension in my lateral, in a varus knee, and then I put the knee up at, at 90 degrees and I move it into varus and it's two millimeters and medially it's six I'll leave that alone and I'll just put it in a, and if it's stable anterior to posterior, I won't do anything about that valgus stress and inflection. That to me is a, is a research note that I think I can make a comment on now in the future. I haven't yet, but I believe I can in the future because it's measurable and I can't just say, well, I look at it and I think, well, I think, I think here, this, this is what I should do. Now I think that's a quantifiable thing where I can say, look at these 40 patients that I took care of, various knees, balanced in extension, same gap on the lateral side as extension immediately that they open up after a medial release that I didn't do any kind of increased constraint on that have good outcomes. That's something I couldn't, I couldn't quantify. I couldn't put numbers to from a research perspective without the robotic technology. 
Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's just one example. But the point is that my, my, for me, why do I need it? I hope to eventually eliminate that terminology. I don't, I don't think anybody needs it. I definitely didn't need it. You didn't need it. But is it a tool that I can use to try to make myself better? Yeah, I do think it is. And it's, it's more information that I think that I can, you know, if we have access to, or we have the ability to have that kind of, that kind of information, why not use it? Well, if you think Rodney about the way a lot of people do knees, it, it's very much follow. It's very formulaic, right? So they put their dysthermal cut guide on, they cut off and then maybe they cut off 10 every time, boom, 10 comes off. A lot of people very unfortunately routinely march their guide up two millimeters and take 12 off. You know, I know mm-hmm. a lot of guys that automatically take two off, which is just awful. And then they take 10 off the high side, right? So if it's a various knee, they put their stylus on the lateral side, mark 10 and cut it off. That approach to a knee ends up with, oh, crap, 15% of the time, like big polys or whatever. And yeah. Rose, for me, that going back to Scott's question about why I need it, I know now ahead of time, Rosa, like other systems, Rosa is not unique with this. It quantifies the, the laxity of the gap ahead of time. I tell it the cuts I'm going to make. It says, look, here's what your gap is going to be if you make that cut. And there are times when I'm making really, really minimal cuts in the total knee now. Not all the time, but mm-hmm. I'm occasionally making five off the tibia and eight off the distal femur and ending yeah. up with a 12 poly that's well balanced. So well, you're leading actually into you're exactly into my next question, which what what have you noticed has been different about your technique, about your resections in particular? I was somebody that with the the training that I had in New York when I did my fellowship, Gil Scuderi would measure every resection to the millimeter with a caliper uh, on every resection that we did on every total knee. So when I came out into practice, I started measuring every uh, caliper, measuring every resection that I made. Early on in my career, I started having some people that were tight in extension early on. So I changed it. Uh, if I if I got nine, I'd say, you know what? I need to make sure I get 10 or 11 with that specific system and my specific technique in order to get the extension better. And I used that data that I, that I caliper measured to change my technique. And I felt like I was able to take care of that problem through those measurements. So I caliper measured this for probably, you know, I've done probably 2,500 total knees over the course of 11 years. Around 2,500 of them, only about 150 of them have been robotic. And I think that one of the things that I would tell people uh, if they're going to start robotics, before you start robotics, utilize your current techniques and caliper measure resections. And then when you start to implement robotics, see if there's a difference. And to me, I have noticed some difference in resections there, and you kind of alluded to it. Uh, I feel like I take less bone posteriorly off the femur, and I end up with larger sizes, I think, larger size implants that I did before. I haven't looked that up yet to see for sure if there's a difference, but I feel like I put in more nines and tens and less less sevens and eights, you know, and then I have smaller posterior femoral resections. And I, I would never have had. I would never have accepted some of the some of the resections that I get from the robot previously. If I would have put my my cutting block up there and I would have gotten eight and five on my posterior eight medial five lateral on my resections, I said something's wrong. This this doesn't make sense because they're not they're they're usually uh, they're usually ten and seven or eleven and eight or something more more along those lines. But now that I have that information and in the balancing data that goes along with it, with the gap balancing technique, like you said, I was more of a little more of a lean, lean measured resection surgeon with total knees. Um, you know, there were some times that I thought if I take that full 12 and, you know, 11 and eight, like I normally take, I'm going to be really loose. I'm going to be four or five millimeters looser in flexion in a way that I never would have thought 
I would, I, I would have been. And and there's all, the other way too. There's been some times that they, that I've thrown it up there and it said that my tibial resections are going to be five and 10, five medial, 10 lateral on a varus knee. And like, I would never have taken that much bone with, without the ba- the gap balancing data that the ro- that the robot provides, I would I would have taken two and seven, and then I would have recut, and then I would have been at four and nine, and then I probably would have still felt I, like I was too tight, and then I would have marched my way down. Which of course, I'd much rather take not enough and march my way down right. than the opposite. But with ro- with the robot, sometimes now I now I say, you know what, I'm going to have a 10, 11 insert here, even though I'm taking five and eight on my tibial resections, which is not a resection that I, that I would have ever gotten before. But that that's where, in my opinion, the power of robotics is recognizing that knees are more individual than we thought they were. That knees don't behave, they don't follow, they don't always follow a particular paradigm. Like you mentioned, mm-hmm. the various knee, we, we, I've called it the crisscross knee where it's, paradoxically loose medially inflection or the valgus knee that's loose laterally inflection that requires component change or you're going to end up with a really weird flexion gap and in my mm-hmm. my previous life if i got a weird flexion gap i'm like what you said like well do i constrain this i'm not going to put in a revision knee or do i do this and cross my fingers and close it <laughs> and say what all whatever dumb things we say to ourselves you know oh it'll tighten up or oh there'll be whatever we Say to make ourselves sleep. That's, at night. that's that's all my favorite. That's always my favorite. The loose ones will tighten up. The tight ones It'll will loosen up. up, and the ones yeah. that we put there where we want to, those are going to stay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So being able to recognize at the beginning what's unique about that person's knee, and then react to it. And then the other thing is is uh, and this is so everything we talk about. And I may be moving us into a different spot, but this is important. Everything up until about a year ago has been anecdotal, right? So uh, somebody gives a talk about robotics. Oh, my patients do better. Well, that's anecdotal evidence. So what does that even mean? Well, I mean, I don't know because I don't, you guys do more research than I do. I'm not, while I'm collecting Coos Junior scores, I'm not comparing them, you know, so Mm -hmm. I'm not doing hardcore research. So if I tell you my knees are doing better, that's just anecdotal. That's my gestalt or whatever. But what I've noticed is I now, when I plan knees, so Going back to measure resection, the, the gold star was a six-degree band of alignment. Three dollars. Mm-hmm. And, and if you ended up at three degrees of varus, you weren't doing that on purpose. You were shooting for neutral and you just fudged into three degrees. So you landed there by accident, right? Mm-hmm. But now we can take a deformity and we can purposely place people in that band and go, you know what? I'm gonna leave you, you're a 20-degree fixed valgus knee. I'm going to leave you in five degrees of valgus or whatever. And we all have our own limit mm-hmm. as to what's acceptable. But I've started in my, my limit of what I did was three on each side. Now it's maybe five on each side. Some people are six or seven, but I'll leave people in varus or valgus. And I rarely do releases anymore. Man, my, my early life as a measure section guy, you remember a terrible varus knee taking a, however you did it, a half inch curved osteotome. I still do. They're freaking tibia, and you're like, oh my land, I'm gonna screw their MCL. And I'm I don't know how often I do releases, maybe five percent of my cases, because I'm using the varus valgus swing and minimizing yeah. release. Okay, so everybody has supposed that that's a reason. Well, there was a study that came out, it was published in uh, J. Arthroplasty last October, and it was with the Omnibots, so it was with the Corns robot, 
where they took two groups. Do you remember? I don't know if you remember the study. I remember. One group was the measure resection group. Everybody's cut the same, and then you soft then they soft tissue released their way to happiness. The other group, they took everything, uh, uh, measured the gaps, and changed the cuts to leave them in varus or valgus and minimize soft tissue release. And then they did prom scores for two years. And I do remember the study. We reviewed this at our at our uh, at our, in one of our meetings, Scott. Yeah. So the the group that minimized releases by playing with varus valgus alignment did better all the way two years later for PROMS data. And I was like, okay, everybody has been talking about that. And to me, that's the first study that started like, okay, here's laying down some evidence that, that this is, this is what's good about it. You know, that's, that's where the benefit comes in. And you've talked, you've talked earlier about you you want to do, if you're going to change something, you want your patients to do better. And now that's evidence. And it's bringing us back to what I was hoping for in 06 how do I know where people want to live? How much mm-hmm. varus, how much valgus? And I think that's a better shot at, at it than I've ever had, being comfortable knowing that I can put somebody in some varus or valgus and help them do better. Yeah, and as a as a counterpoint to that, I'm I'm still more of a I'm shooting for zero every single time. So oh, you are <laughs> interesting. Okay. I, I I am. I'm still like I said, I'm 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 insult insult trained. I'm trying to put every knee at zero, and and I don't and I don't move one way or another. That's one thing I went when I went and um, watched somebody do these for the first time. Trevor Bank up in Michigan. I start I, yeah. I observed him, and and he he had a knee that was just a couple millimeters or just a millimeter or so from being from being balanced, and he put and he shifted his tibial component into like a degree and a half of varus. I mean, barely any adjustment at all to make it balanced. And I'm like, that is not how I would have done that. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, so it made me kind of, and I still don't, um, I don't, but I don't, not because I think he's wrong. I just think it's, I, I think I'm kind of waiting like you were and where's the data that shows us that this is going to be okay. For me, it's, it's the long-term concern. I don't, I don't doubt and have never doubted that if I take somebody who's Varus and leave them in Varus, they're going to feel better than if I try to correct them neutral, at least in the short term. Never denied or, or thought opposite yeah. of that. My question is, if we leave somebody in three, four, five degrees of varus, which you know, if you try to leave somebody in three, we're going to leave some people in five or six, and we're going to leave some people at neutral. That band, that band that we miss by is going to is going to still miss by about that much. Our target's just going to be different. So you know, if you leave somebody in four to five degrees of varus, what's that going to mean in the long term? So I'm a little, like we talked about earlier. I'm a little more of a slow adopter, and, and and time will tell on that. But but those kind of studies that the one that you're that you're referencing, I wish I could remember who it was so I could give them credit for it. But uh, that's a um, that that's the kind of data that I think we need uh, in 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 joint replacement right now. What's interesting about about the fear of alignment, right? The fear of alignment is. We, we want to load things perpendicularly so they don't fail, mm-hmm. right? So the big fear was thou shalt not varus for the fear that a varus uh, construct would fail. Well, we all, we all know from experience that femurs don't fail very often. Tibias fail. Mm-hmm. So now if, if I put a bunch of x-rays up and got a bunch of people with your experience and my experience, and they were all, one was perfectly neutral, one was off by, one was a degree of varus all the way up to three, I don't know when people would start noticing the difference visually, but it might not be until about three degrees of varus that you start to yeah. notice they're different. KA guys put tibias at, at significant degrees of varus, right? I don't do that. You, when you see my film, they might be in a little bit of varus, but I've got a pretty yeah. – I'm still stuck where you are, and maybe stuck's the wrong word. I don't want to take the tibia very far away from neutral. So I'll 
maybe go a couple of degrees, right? If I go three degrees, that's a pretty extreme day for me. Which of course begs the question though, like if we, if we think that those people feel better leaving them in that alignment, why are we scared to go past three? Right. I've heard, I heard Tom Faring say the same thing in a meeting once. And a guy that I, that I really respect a lot that I listen to whenever he's talking to meetings, he said, I think it was him said, you know, I'm good at three. I don't really want to push past three. That's why I guess I'm just not all in on the, the kinematic Kool-Aid yet is because if, if you think it's better then 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 go for it. Like if, if it's only better within a certain amount of bounds around parallel and perpendicular, then it sounds a lot like what I'm saying, which is that everybody should be parallel and perpendicular. We've gotten off track here. Uh, another question I wanted to talk about was, was efficiency. Um, uh, you know, the big worry and, and the, and the data again, settled science, I believe of computer navigation was that it added time to your case. It didn't seem yep. it seemed like, Every study showed that it added time to the case. Uh, I, and what's your experience like from an efficiency and time standpoint? Okay, so initially, obviously, our Rosa cases took me longer, right? I mean, I don't know how much longer, 10, 15 minutes as I was adjusting to everything. And it's, it, it's, it's such a, a mojo switch because my PA is mm-hmm. moving around and getting in the way of the robot. And how do you get out of the way of the arm? And how do you do the planning screen? But when I got to about, I don't know, 20 or 30 cases, and I was pretty close to what my prior tourniquet times would be. I honestly sat there and thought, okay, I'm not time neutral yet. This is maybe 20 cases in, but I was feeling so good about what I was doing that I I concluded I didn't care anymore. So (laughs) I didn't care at 20 cases that I wasn't time neutral. Now, eventually I got to where I was, where my tourniquet times were before and about the, I don't know what's been happening, but so I'm about 700 roses in now about the last three months. I've, my tourniquet times are dropping. But I really honestly don't care about target times as long as they're reasonable, right? You can't mm-hmm. do a total knee over an hour, and this is my opinion, and you can't do a total knee in 20 minutes. I mean, that's just my feeling. So if I'm looking for somebody to do my knee and the first thing they tell me is that their target time is X minutes, I'm not going to pick that person to do my knee, right? Knees sure. are fast if they're fast and they take a little bit of time, take a little bit of time. So that's a very windy way to answer your question. So yeah. am I, the, the efficiency piece, is it more efficient than standard instruments? No, there's no way. When I'm bouncing rooms around, and if I have to move the robot, it's not more efficient that way. Is it more efficient because I open fewer pans? Maybe a little bit, but not enough in my opinion to make a big statement about it. And then is it faster? No. Is it time, is it time equivalent? Probably. The problem is when surgeons come into robotics and if all they want is speed, then I don't think robotics is for them. No doubt. I agree with you um, there. Because because robotics and Rodney and I, I really think so in the three years I've used robotics, I've learned more about total knees than the prior 17 years. I have no doubt about that because mm-hmm. because robotics and, and, and this is where there are some companies on the market that hurt surgeons where they if a company facilitates a robotic case so you don't have to think about it. Right. If the company rep is in the room and running the planning screen and planning your case, I, I, I hate everything about that because it mm-hmm. it arrests the surgeon's understanding of robotics and it doesn't let them get deep into the into the really beneficial weeds of robotics. Right. So surgeons that really want to learn and really use these machines for what they can do, man, that's that's where all the power is. And so surgeons. It, they have to come into robotics and want that and then understand that's going to cost something. And the cost is going to be, it's going to take you longer at first. 
And it's going to take you a bunch of preparation to get into it. And you're going to have a learning curve. And if you can be cool with that, then, it, then it's all gravy after that, in my opinion. I used to think that the people who needed this were the, the – I always thought the conundrum with robotics and computer navigation was that the people who needed it were people who were lower-volume surgeons who didn't do as many of them, and they were the ones that were least likely – to spend the excess cost that it would take for their hospital to buy a robot. I thought, well, I'm a high volume surgeon. You're a high volume surgeon. We probably don't need it. And because of that, we're the ones that would probably be able to justify the excess cost the most because we have a higher volume, but we're the ones that don't need it because we're so good. Cause we're these, you know, we're fellowship trained and all this, and all this right, stuff. Right, right. Over time, I, I, I kind of got off of that high horse a little bit, I think, to, to realize that, you know, the, the data is pretty clear from conventional instrumentation that we're off a hell of a lot more than we think we are off and, and a hell of a lot more often than we think we are off. Uh, and and that, that this has definitely tightened the curve around uh, around alignment for me and I think for everybody, which navigation's told us that. It's also tightening the curve around ligament balancing. I think it's tightening the curve around slope. I think it's tightening the curve around around everything. Uh, where where for me as as a someone who does a lot of a lot of knee arthroplasty and most of what I do, I, I still feel like it's it's definitely something that's been a, a big improvement for me. Agree. And I you know one of the benefits of a system like Rose is it's constantly gathering data and then it feeds the if the if the surgeon's using the data pairing with it, the my mobility program that collects PROMS data before and after surgery and and serially as they recover, you know, Zimmer's investing a ton of money to start helping us finally figure out like what really works. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe everything works, maybe you know what philosophy is better? Is it is is KA better? Is is a hybrid version better? Is is whatever people are calling restricted KA or physiologic alignment, whatever people are calling it. So it's going to be fun to start seeing what happens when high volume, serious minded surgeons that are willing to learn, right? That are willing to go to, to like you just said, right? Come come to the table and go, listen, okay, first of all, I'm willing to drop all of my sacred cows if it's better to drop them. Like yeah. I, I'm, I'm open to doing this differently and I'm open to learning. So you take a high volume surgeon that's got 10 years under their belt like you and that comes and goes, hey man, I am willing to, to learn and change my mind if, if it's reasonable to change my mind. In other words, I'm not yeah. gonna come to this and impose my philosophy on the robot. I'm gonna see what happens and, and, and if I don't need to change, I won't, but I'm open to changing. I think a lot for, a lot, for some people that, that amount of data is intimidating. I think uh, you know. Uh, I think some some reps that I've had that didn't ha- that are seeing it for the first time with me, uh, you know, medical students when I have in there when I'm going, all right, take that up two millimeters, take that this way, take that this way, take that that way. All right, go. They're like, what the hell just what happened? Hell just happened? Uh, and and, um, and so I actually did this today in a case. I stepped away. I walked out. I'm like, come here. I'm like, see that number right there? That one's two millimeters different from this. One. That's why I'm moving this here. So then I had to move it. And and, and I, I think and nothing against. Surgeons, but sometimes surgeons get it get in the in the role of this. Uh, I take this much from here. I take that much from there. This is how I do it, and and they don't nerd out like you and I do on the on the little details of you know if I rotate this much this way, if I take a couple more millimeters here, that I'm that I'm going to do that. And 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 actually, the, the amount of data that it gives you can be intimidating at first. But uh, but again, I w- I wouldn't want to go back now that I have that kind of data. Um, that that's the part that's been really uh really fascinating and interesting. 
So Dr. Ballard, my, my background is physical therapy. And when we see these patients after surgery, as we started to transition to the robot, when Dr. Benner was doing this for the past year or so, with your experience in doing this, sending these patients to rehab afterwards or physical therapy postoperatively, are there any changes that you are making because of the robot or are you seeing any different objective rehab measures that are either better or worse with your patients now that you're using robotics? So the key question you asked is, is objective measures. And being in private practice, I don't have any I mean, objective measures, meaning I'm not studying this. I'm not collecting and comparing the data points. So to be honest, you know, a total knee is a very insulting operation to the leg, right? You, we can't get away from that. And anybody that tells me, okay, this is my personal opinion. Does robotics make things totally easier for somebody? It doesn't. When patients come in and they, they go, oh, you're doing this with a robot, and they have this idea it's going to be easy, I'm like, no, 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 no. This is, this is not going to be easy. Recovery is going to be very hard. And so do I, get, do I get a perfect case off the table? Yes. And does somebody sometimes come in and their rehab has not been perfect? Absolutely. So do I still get people that, that are, are struggling to get full extension? Yep. Do I still occasionally have a manipulation? I do. Um, because you can't change humans, right? And so much of knee recovery is based on how the person approaches pain, how they're put together psychologically, what their social support network is like, what the effort they put into therapy. And you as a therapist know that better than anybody. Do, do I think that I get a knee off the table that's the best product that I can get off the table? I do. Do I think that, P and now we have the science behind it, that minimizing release is better? Yes, because I'm not I'm not giving somebody a grade three MCL tear like I was before by jamming an osteotome down the inside of their tibia. So I think it gives them a better opportunity to do better, but I would not sit here and tell you like, oh, it's been the recovery difference has been magical, because I think that would be that would be disingenuous. It's still a really hard operation to get over. And there are still people that will struggle no matter what we do for them. Um, now that's of course I'm saying that, but and, and Rodney will tell you that when we think about that question, our mind goes to our problem patients. And I'm forgetting the 15 people that walk in at six weeks and are doing this and doing great. And we don't tend to focus on them. So I do get people that are doing ridiculously well. Their recoveries are short. Um, I'm just kind of in a mode 20 years into my practice. That I don't overcongratulate myself. I'm with you on that as well, because you hear some some pretty interesting claims when you talk to people who are trying to sell robotics or who have been doing robotics and they're 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 trying to convince you on it. Oh my gosh, therapy! I had people coming in sometimes they're all the way straight, they're bending to 120 degrees at such a quick time point, and, and I, I I I'm with you that I'm 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 much less much less likely to make outlandish claims with 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 regard to range of motion. If you've listened to any of our podcasts, you should know that we are crazy about range of motion as it relates to sports medicine topics, but also as it relates to arthritic knee care and total knee replacement. So we measure range of motion uh, every single patient that we see every single day. And one of our therapists quantifies it with a goniometer, measures it to the degree every time we see the patient. So we have an avalanche of range of motion data that uh, I think as time goes by, I, you know, we're, we're planning to query to see whether it makes it makes a difference early on after surgery. Does taking that person that I used to take, you know, 10, 11, 12 millimeters of posterior, posterior femoral bone, and now I'm taking 
you know, seven or eight, does that make a difference? Does that make them feel more normal? And does that improve their flexion? Even though we've taken, you know, theoretically that may result in a tighter flexion gap. Is that tighter flexion gap more balanced and then able to still have a better amount of flexion? Or does that tighten them in some way, restrict their flexion? I definitely don't think that's the case. But the point is that I, I do think that's something that, that that I think is an important thing to be able to qu- give give us quantifiable uh, physical therapy data with reproducible, measurable techniques that I that I think hopefully we'll be able to comment on in the future. My own confirmation bias of me, me thinking that every patient that does well is because of robotics, and every patient that doesn't do well can't be blamed on robotics. Uh, we all fall into that trap, but uh, you know the 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 the, the data will uh, will uh, will answer those questions for us. Now, you know, seeing these patients initially post-op, we're fighting swelling for the first six, eight, you know, 10, 12 weeks even. And that, as everybody knows, will really limit their flexion. Now, when you're talking about taking less resections or limiting balancing procedures, is there at least a theoretical benefit of reducing swelling? I know you said total knees are an insulting type surgery, which I would completely agree with as well. But uh, I know we talked about efficiency being about time neutral, so we'll take that out of the equation. But especially when it comes to something like ligament balancing, if you feel like you're not doing that as often, do you feel like there's going to be less post-op swelling to the point where you could get some acute gains in motion? That's a good question. And Rodney would probably agree with me. I think the insult of this operation isn't necessarily – the posterior lateral corner release I'd have to do in a bad valgus knee or the posterior medial release or the deep MCL release in a bad varus knee. Avoiding those things I think is helpful, but the insult I think is in the bone cuts when they go into extension and they get a controlled tear of their gastrocs or, you know, those things I think are the true insult. So it does help that we're not damaging the medial lateral structures as much with releases, but I still think the main driver of the inflammation is just the anger that this operation, you know, the the, the insult this operation is to the, to the leg, and I don't know if those releases do a lot to minimize that crazy inflammation that people can get when they come in and they're super swollen. Yeah, I mean, from a swelling perspective specifically, I think the bigger releases that you do on the medial side, which which I do, you're talking about doing medial releases with an osteotome. That's how I do them every day, um, and and I think that does result in more bruising down the leg, not necessarily more swelling in the knee. For me, the improvement in swelling has been getting rid of the tourniquet, not getting not getting uh, getting into robotics. Uh, my tourniquet time hovers around zero on average. Uh, so the, the, I have not noticed the difference in my tourniquet times over time. Cause I don't use, I don't put one on, I don't use one anymore and, uh, have, have abandoned that completely. I feel there's definitely more intraoperative bleeding, but I, I don't feel like there's as much postoperative swelling because mm. the bleeding has largely already happened and stopped by the time it's, you've had the knee open for the, the whole time and, and, and using TXA has been a, been a big important part about that as well. So I don't know that robotics is really changing that much. I guess I, I, I'll take that back as quickly as I say it, not cannulating the femur, I, I think does relate, does result yep. in a little bit less uh, diffusion as well by not putting a rod up inside the femur. I used to stick a bone plug up there and sometimes yep. I'd get a perfect little press fit and go, wow, look at that. That looks perfect. <laughs> sometimes I would stuff half of my anterior chamfer section in there. Like, well, that's not doing anything, but okay. I guess we're, <laughs> we're I guess we're moving on here. Uh, I do think that makes a little bit of a difference. Yeah, it's funny you brought up tourniquets. I'm not. You guys did a podcast on tourniquet use. I saw, so I'll have to go back and listen to that. But uh, <laughs> that, that, that's a topic for another day. Yep. 
as you wrap up and kind of summarize your thoughts on this, what would be kind of those key take home points that if, if there's somebody who's listening to the podcast that hasn't tried robotics, uh, what would be a couple of the main points that you really want them to take home from this, uh, from this discussion tonight? I think it's in listening to you and I talk, it's two, we're two surgeons that like all of us care a lot about patients. We love this operation. We deeply respect the complexity of this operation and the individuality of each knee, right? And we were both incredibly reluctant to approach robotics. We both kind of went kicking and screaming and did to different degrees to this. And to have two complete skeptics that don't have a dog in the fight, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I didn't design Rosa. I didn't design any of this stuff. I don't get paid to talk about, I mean, I don't get paid to, to use this royalties, whatever mm-hmm. you want to say. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm uh, pretty neutral about that. And I can't imagine doing any without it. And if you took Rosa away from me, I would pick another robotic system and then take the same techniques to it. So if you're skeptical, I think that's because you're smart and you're careful. And I think it's very healthy to be skeptical. And but I think you should be, you know, I frequently tell people that I'm open-minded in a closed-minded kind of a way. So you should take your skepticism and look into robotics and and prove it to yourself and, you know, and 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 take that leap because I think like a, a lot of us are showing, you know, you're going to learn, you're not just going to learn a lot more about total needs, but and a lot of people have told me this, and you commented on this earlier my enthusiasm for total knee replacement has gone way up. My interest, my, my, uh, you know, the joy of approaching this problem ha- has gone way up as a result of Rosa, and I'm much more engaged in it. Mm-hmm. Did you did you find that? Yeah, I mean, I, I was, you know, from from a research perspective, it was kind of mind blowing to me the amount of data that you that we were getting out of this. My one of my former reps. Who uh, who left our local area, moved on, and was uh, was a part of the 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 uh, the team with Rosa um, would send me a screenshot of him scrolling through not the patient information, but just the the amount of data, and he would scroll down all the measurements that people make, and I'm like, man, that is uh that that that's awesome. I said, what what are people doing with that? He and he said, they're throwing it in the trash. They're 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 not they're they're using it somewhat during surgery. There's a lot of it they're not using, and then from a research perspective, click delete and it's gone. And it hurt my feelings. It hurt. Yeah. <laughs> it hurt my feelings when he would show me that stuff. We've had a couple meetings recently about what do we want to? How do we take all this data, all this mass of of numbers that we have? What are the ones that matter the most? What are the ones that we want to focus on from a research perspective? Because there's a lot of stuff that I think, you know, I don't really think we need this. I do think we need this. And and, and from for me, it's just a it's just a, a lot of data and a lot of information that I think, while it may be intimidating to people that haven't used it before, if you haven't thought about knee replacement in that level of complexity before, um, you know, if there's if you're wondering what how can I get better, why do I have X amount of percentage of patients that aren't that aren't happy to know for me if you, if that's where you're at with it to know that there's all this other information that's out there that you can have that 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 may that may 
unlock some of those answers for you. I think that's really exciting. And for me, like you said, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a data nerd when it comes to total knees anyway, and the, the ability to have all the extra data that we have from, from robotics has been, has made me, I, I do think has made me better. And it definitely has, there have definitely been subtleties where I, where sometimes where I make cuts and I measure them and I look at it on the screen and everything balances. And I think, man, I would not have done this knee in this way. Yep. Yep. Had I not had the robot, maybe I still would have had a good outcome anyway. I don't know. Maybe I would have still had a bad, bad outcome anyway. Time will tell. I would tell people to stay skeptical if you're skeptical, but open your mind and start looking. It does, looking doesn't hurt. Go to a lab, pick, take your favorite knee system, pick the robot that goes with it. I, I have experience with Rosa, so I'm, I'm, I've got a bias towards the, the usage of that robot, of course. But if you're going to use a robot, learn everything about it and run it yourself. And don't let, anybody, don't let anybody plan your case for you. Learn it, use it, be the only person in that room that's the master of that planning screen. And I think it'll change your practice. I think I was a pain in the butt with the reps that you were there that day when they were they were they were kind of going through that stuff with me. I stopped them about halfway. I'm like, fellas, hold time out, time out for a second. You, uh, you weren't at this point, but I'm like, fellas, I don't need you to tell me how to do the operation. And I, I don't say that from a place of arrogance. I'm like, I, I, I don't need, I'm not here today to learn how you think I should do the operation with the robot. I'm here for you to tell me to, to work with me on how do I do my, op, how do I do my operation the way that I want to do it, that I know that I know how to do it the best yep. way with the, ro with the robot. It's also a conversation I have with patients a lot. Um, I, I always make the joke, they're like, so you use a robot to do my operation. I say, yeah, I sit in the corner and drink Diet Coke while the, while the robot, you know, steps its way in and does your operation for you and they laugh. But then I say, you know what, really, you have to think about it is it's just a tool to do your operation. I used to use a different set of tools. Now I use a new set of tools. The, the robot only knows what I tell it. The only robot only knows what you tell it. It only yep. adjusts itself. If you tell it to adjust itself, it's just a tool for us to do the operation. The, the one thing I would say to anybody who's listening that's thinking about it, if you're thinking about a switch to uh, a switch to robot robotics, before you do it, start caliper measuring your resections and try to figure out what what level, what kind of thickness resections you make on a regular basis because the ROSA pops up or the robot, the robot posts up puts up a lot of data of you're going to take 9.5 here and nine here, 12 here, nine here, this amount of rotation here, this amount of resection here. And if you've never looked at those things and measured your resections to know what is my normal distal medial femoral resection, you don't know that all of a sudden you have all this information and, and how do I put that into context with what I've done in the past? So take a bunch of cases and measure your own resections, kind of come up with that framework in your brain and, uh, and then use that when you go into robotics. Dr. Ballard, thank you again for uh, uh, joining us tonight and taking some time out of your day uh, and, uh, and, for, and for coming on. We really enjoyed the discussion. It's been great, guys. Thank you for your time. As we talked about before, you can find Dr. Ballard on Instagram at rock underscore orthopedics, R-O-C underscore orthopedics on Instagram or the Rock Orthopedics Facebook page. He also has his own uh, his own website as well, and that is jamesballardmd.com, where you can go and learn more about him. If you want to catch our social media outlets, we are at the SKC Podcast 
on Twitter and uh, Instagram. We also have the Shelbourne East Center podcast Facebook page. We also have a YouTube channel. And wherever you get your podcasts, hit that follow button so you can catch all of our content every week and leave us a comment for people to come behind. Thank you all for joining us again, and we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.